You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Thanks for tuning into Mining Stock Education. I am your host, Bill Powers. Joining me today is Keith Weiner. He is the CEO of Monetary Metals. Website is monetary-metals.com. He is an Austrian economist and a sound money advocate. It's been two years since I spoke with you, Keith, but welcome back onto the show. Thanks, Bill, and thanks for having me again. Yes, absolutely. And I follow you on Twitter, and I'm always intrigued and by your thought-provoking tweets that are actually against the grain of the way a lot of gold bugs think. So I guess I'll start the conversation there. What are some of the things that you think uh, gold proponents or gold bugs, as we call them, are getting wrong? You know, it's funny. I just responded in a um, in a tweet that hopefully wasn't too provoking, but maybe thought-provoking. Someone had said that the reason why central bankers suppress the price of gold is um, because they know that uh, it's not the price of gold going up, it's that their currency is going down as measured in gold. So I, so I said, uh, hey, I have to, I have to butt in here. Um, you know, number one, um, I've, I've written more than anybody to debunk this idea of price suppression conspiracy. But I said, um, everywhere I go, I, I say the same thing, which is it's not gold going up, it's currencies going down. And um, the central bankers, don't regard gold, don't think about gold. And if you raise it with them, as I have, they just kind of get puzzled. They're like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not been a thing. It'd be like almost raising the issue of, um, you know, horse and buggies and, and whips and horseshoes. You know, people, what are you talking about? We're moving from internal combustion engines to electri- electric motors. And you're talking about horses and buggies. Like they, they don't really, they're, they're puzzled, like genuine, not like angry, suppressing it, like nothing to see or moving along, folks. But like, what are you talking about? Um, but I said, um, I, I always say the same thing. You'll know that the tide is turning towards regarding gold as money. And as people thinking about dollars and other currencies falling in terms of gold, the, the very first group to, to follow that paradigm will be the gold bucks. When you'll know that this is happening when they stop, first of all, fretting about the suppressed price of gold um, and stop thinking about the value of their gold in dollar terms. I have $10,000 worth of gold. They'll say, well, I have this many ounces of gold. And um, we're not there yet. I think I think we'll get there. Um, but uh, the world isn't wired that way right now. What about inflation? You're not necessarily on the inflation to the moon uh, crowd, are you? Yeah, so... Um, the first thing I think you have to do with inflation is break it down. You know, Milton Friedman famously said, inflation is always and everywhere monetary. And um, I, I, the first thing you have to do is say, stop true. So, um, you know, the most recent example, and I, I, I tweet about every time I find one, I tweet it. I, I probably am regarded as a tired old bore at this point. But um, some U.S. agricultural inspector was in Mexico and got by email, I think, to his official or text to his official, you know, Department of Agriculture phone, a threat against his life. So the U.S. said, okay, fine, we're no longer allowing imports of avocados from Mexico. Well, what's that going to do to the price of avocados in supermarkets in the U.S.? And skyrocket, uh, obviously. Now, I don't know if avocado was included in the CPI or not, I presume not. But you know, it's a perfect example. That price is going to skyrocket. Everyone who sees that is going to say, wait, avocado, avocados, when Trump was president, were only, you know, $1.50 and now they're $5. You know, look at all this inflation under Biden and the Fed. 
um, maybe Biden gets some of the blame because it's his Department of Agriculture that restricted imports, but it's not a monetary phenomenon. Clearly, it just created a uh, artificial scarcity. And, um, you know, that's it. So then I've written about chicken and everyone says the price of chicken is going up. The price of chicken is going up and it's going down at the same time, depending on where you look in the market. And so what's really going on is the COVID rules have made it impossible for the meatpacking plants to stay fully staffed. You know, if one person has to be out for, for a COVID quarantine, maybe his, you know, his kid is in a class and somebody had COVID there or whatever, maybe the whole department has to be sent home and they just can't stay staffed. So what that means is they have less capacity. So they're buying fewer birds from the farmers. Buying fewer birds means the farmers are getting paid less per bird because there's an overabundance of, of birds at that level. And the farmers are, are taking it on the chin, obviously, financially, because they have to destroy those birds or whatever they do. Um, regulation generally prevents an end run around the uh, legally privileged middleman. And I don't think those birds can, farmers can just set up a, a way to sell direct to consumer. Um, and the consumers are paying more for chicken at the same time because there's less output. So most people would consider this to be inflation, look at the price of food skyrocketing. Well, it's actually a, a, a decrease in coordination in the economy created by regulation, not inflation. Uh, and so my final point on that is falling interest rates incentivizes increased production capacity. That is every business that's building a business case for why they should borrow more money to expand is always stuck on, well, it doesn't make sense. Every time you cut the rate of interest, the marginal business case to expand suddenly clicks into place, the spreadsheet turns green, and then you know everybody from the hamburger joint to the farmer to the miner says, oh, we'll borrow more and, and expand. And so I don't think the cure for higher prices is going to be higher interest rates. Um, and I don't think most of what we're seeing is uh, uh, monetary in origin anyways. I think so, it's, but the last two years, you would agree, though, have been extraordinary in terms of what the powers that be have done monetary with the, the amount of money they printed, uh, the monetizing of the debt. I mean, this is unprecedented. So how can you say it's, it's not impacting inflation or is it minimally impacting inflation in your view? The same thing happened uh, post-2008. And at that time, it was unprecedented. Of course, what they're doing today makes 2008 look like a little barely noticeable speed bump compared to the mountain of what they've done today. But um, there's a couple of arguments. One, when a bank has a billion dollars worth of treasury bonds and the Fed buys the treasury bonds off the bank and gives the bank's reserves, that does not increase anybody's spending power. Um, you know, whether they do it a billion dollars or $10 billion or a trillion dollars, that doesn't really change anything. Um, my argument is that one shouldn't pay attention to quantity of dollars which is called quantum money, but the dollar isn't money anyway. But uh, one should pay attention to the interest rate because the interest rate is somebody's incentive. If I say to somebody, would you increase your spending tomorrow if you read somewhere that the quantity of money went up? I mean, that's not something that impacts people. How would anybody even know what the quantity is unless they studied it? But if you ask people, what decision would you make differently if your bank came back to you with the same offer to lend you money, but now at a new lower interest rate, Everybody's an answer to that. So the interest rate's the incentive. And the lower in, falling interest rate means an increased incentive to increase production capacity, which means increased supply, 
which generally means falling prices, which has been the trend since 1981. Countered by ever rising what I call useless ingredients, which are regulatory mandates to put in, let's say, ethanol into gasoline, which has a real cost. Um, useless ingredients, you know, people know about ethanol and gasoline, although I'm not sure the CPI takes it into account. Usually useless ingredients are something that, number one, the customer doesn't value at all. That's why the regulators have to force it. If people valued it, they would demand it, and the market would provide it. Number two, usually the consumer is not even aware of what goes into uh, you know, all of these things. And so they just look at it and say, the price went up, it has to be monetary. And, uh, and I've been arguing for, for many, many years, it just isn't. Uh, the monetary force is falling interest rates means uh, you know, a tendency to falling prices or at least soft prices mitigated by you know, more and more and more regulation. Now, post COVID, we've had lockdown and then what I call lockdown whiplash We've had, uh, since pre-COVID, an increasing global megatrend towards trade war, not just tariffs, but more broadly, distrust other jurisdictions and onshoring you know, process, all of which has real costs. Um, and then finally, green energy restrictions. So I've written about in the UK, for example, they passed two laws, one that bans domestic fracking for natural gas, and the other that forces all the domestic heavy industry and power plants to switch from coal and oil to natural gas, which can no longer be produced domestically. Then you mix into that the logistics nightmare and the shipping nightmare of the lockdown whiplash, and people can't ship Christmas tree ornaments from Shanghai to the U.S., and they can't ship natural gas. Everything is just getting all hung up in this you know, fiasco, and it's a perfect storm. And suddenly you see the price of the natural gas, I think it was up eight times or something uh, in the U.K., and people will say, well, the Bank of England is printing too much. To which I would say, is this really printing? Is this something else? What about commodities in general? Uh, I've had uh, guests on the show that say we're facing a commodity bull market and one for the ages or one for our lifetime, at least. But it sounds like you might not think that. Could you share a little bit about your expectation uh, regarding the theme of a general commodities bull market? If we were to return to the dynamic of the 1960s and especially 1970s, and that was a, a dynamic. So I, I think of things as, as dynamics. A static snapshot just doesn't really, like what's the quantity of money? Um, it's, it's a static number. And I just don't think you can really understand a, a system that's in motion that way. So in the 1970s, you had rising interest rates and rising prices. And not only is there mutual positive feedback between the two, but there's a ratchet effect. And so... To, to make a really long story really short, I'll try to centralize this in a minute. Um, when people's time preference is violated, so time preference is something that's built into human nature, the central bank can manipulate the interest rate, but they can't manipulate um, human nature, not nearly as much as they might like to think they could. So they push the market interest below, market rate of interest below time preference. The people react to that by um, hoarding. Um, you know, consumers begin by hoarding finished goods. So I, I, I'm just old enough to remember in the late 1970s, we'd go to the supermarket and my parents would, you know, tuna fish was, let's say, on sale. They'd buy 100 cans of tuna fish or something like that. Um, and we'd eat like one can a week, you know, for, for Sunday brunch or something. Um, but, you know, they would, pro I, I put it in these terms, they preferred a pantry balance to a bank balance. 
because the interest rate, which in those days was much higher than now, granted, was below their, their time preference. So all of this hoarding by consumers is pushing up prices because there is not only an increase in the rate of purchases by consumers relative to the rate of production, but the, but the increase in rate is increasing itself. In other words, this is happening at a faster and faster pace. People are buying more and more, not to actually consume, but to stock up. And I knew people that were stocking up on you know, paper towels and, and uh, facial tissues, toilet paper, um, you know, detergent, everything that didn't really spoil or didn't spoil quickly. People bought huge amounts of this stuff. Now, uh, once industry recognizes this, they get in on the act and then they begin to hoard everything from raw materials, partially completed work in progress. And, you know, warehouses are stacking up with all this stuff. The difference between corporations and consumers is corporations are selling bonds to finance all of this inventory. So then that selling of the bond is pushing down the bond price, which is, of course, pushing off the interest rate. The bond price and the interest rate are a strict, you know, it's a seesaw, it's a strict inverse. And so, so corporations are pushing up interest rates and chasing them up. So normally you think of like a higher price as a cure for higher prices, you get less demand. But in this perverse cycle, that's ultimately a government distortion, a central bank, um, you know, madness. Um, you get corporations chasing the interest rate all the way up to absurd levels, as we saw by the end of the 1970s, uh, in order to, to, to raise cash to chase commodities up to absurd levels. Uh, and the more that prices went up, the more this trade went on. Uh, and it's because interest was below time preference. Now, consumers can see that everything is skyrocketing, and so their time preference increases. And so, yes, the interest rate is up, but so is time preference. And so that spread remains inverted, that time preference is below interest and it should be um, the other way around. And so this, this is a ratchet and, a, and a, a positive feedback loop that keeps iterating, iterating, iterating. It eventually breaks. The guy that happened to be standing there as the wizard behind the curtain was Paul Volcker, happened to be standing there when this finally broke. Interest rate had risen so high, it finally got above marginal time preference. Perhaps just as importantly is that commodities have a diminishing marginal utility. The more copper you have, let alone wheat or corn, the less that the next unit is worth to you. And we've you know, filled every possible warehouse uh, to, to, the, to the gills with this stuff. And so eventually, um, you know, time preference gets, I'm uh, sorry, um, interest gets above time preference. Uh, commodities stack up to the point where the liquidations have to begin. Um, and then finally, the interest rate is not only above time preference, it's also above marginal return on capital. You cannot borrow money at 20% for a business that generates 15% return on capital. So those two inversions, you know, uh, one inversion corrects, the other one is created. Too much commodities stack up and thus begins the great squeeze, compressing all of the inventory out of the system, you know, just in time, lean these trends begin to, to, to take hold, you know, in the early to mid 1980s. Um, and that's the trend that we're still in today. So today, is there any corporation alive that is in a position not only to borrow more to, to finance commodities, but to actually chase up the interest rate? To, my, to that, my answer is something like 20% of all the debt that's out there is zombie corporation debt. A zombie being defined as their profits are less than their interest expense. Are these companies in any position? No, they're not even in a position to stay alive if interest rates go up. And so I think the Fed is going to be very mindful of that 
and not want to allow all that to default, let alone are they in a position to pay more and more and more uh, in, in order to um, you know, pile up hordes of commodities in a speculation against further prices. Now, all of that said, what can happen is a widening of the spread, just as in the, in the case of chicken farmers, um, the commodity producers can find themselves uh, you know, not able to make as much money because there are various regulatory inefficiencies jammed into the middle of the, of the market, whether they be ESG or green energy restrictions more generally, or who knows what, that at the same time that the person is actually mining the stuff out of the ground is making less than consumer products manufactured with the stuff could be going up because of regulatory and fiscal interferences. You know, would you call that inflation? I would say, well, that's a low resolution to borrow the term from Jordan Peterson, that's a low resolution uh, you know, view of it. Keith, since you're a, clearly a libertarian, what's your perspective on the whole carbon offset market? I would assume you're not a proponent of it. Well, first of all, as a scientist, I just look at it and say, the earth has been far warmer in history than it is now. Um, you know, at the time, uh, uh, you know, not too long ago, they were growing good wine grapes in England. It's quite a bit warmer. So number one, I don't think there's a catastrophe anyways. Number two, I'm not a big fan of government interference. And in a way, the worst kind of government interference is one where they set up something that to all superficial appearances looks to be a market. Um, It's like these make work jobs programs where they call it workfare rather than welfare. It gives it the appearance of a legitimate job, except as somebody being paid to do something useless. Or in this case, it's a market where people are buying and selling some sort of credits which are gov- artificial government, um, you know, whatever. I'm trying to remember who wrote about this. It might have been Doomberg wrote about the uh, carbon offset credit market in Europe and how, you know, it allows a, a player like Russia to just absolutely put the squeeze on European industry by bidding up these credits, taking them out of corporate hands and forcing, forcing everybody back to the, uh, you know, horsepower age. Um, no, I'm not a big fan of that. There's also the voluntary market too, right? Not just the sovereign market where the, the governments top down impose it, but there's also corporations just wanting to fill ESG goals to where they will buy these offsets too. Now, how much of that is really voluntary and how much of that is like the IRS saying that the compliance with paying your taxes is 90% voluntary? Yeah, most people don't force the government to show up at their house with machine guns, most people will pay their tax, not needing to go that far because they know that it would if they were to push it. Uh, how many? How many people? How many investors are, are are buying ESG because they feel regulatory pressures on them, whether they're pension fund managers or banks or whatever? You know, if you're in that space, can you really? Are you in a position to say I'm not doing ESG? You know, I, I question that. Okay, so Keith, we're talking about these issues. As an investor, I know you're a Ron Paul fan, and I like Ron Paul. I like his son, Rand Paul, too. But one of my critiques of uh, Ron Paul is that perhaps he was too pure in his ideology that he couldn't functionally get done politically at least a fraction of what he stood for and would leave the world a better place. That's one of my critiques. I mean, do you think that's a fair critique? And you know, as an investor, when it comes to ESG and these things, whether we believe in it or not, we have to factor it into our investment decisions. And what would be your take there as well? Well, I think the, the political question 
there's a pretty simple answer, which is ultimately it's not the job of the politicians to try to change the hearts and minds to, to overuse an overused expression. Um, you know, the voters want what they want. And to the extent that you're a politician who's selling them what they want, you get elected. To the extent that you're trying to change what they want, you have an uphill battle, which I think is what you're referring to that, you know, that he faced. Um, as ultimately, they're just not in a position. You know, the, the culture is going to change. If the culture changes, it's going to be the philosophy professors, the journalism professors, the, you know, theater and, and film school professors. It's the people that are training the, the, the ones that are going out there and, and teaching and giving, pre- teaching and preaching and giving the culture the body of ideas that we just take for granted today. Um, and you're right. I mean, as a politician, you have to just live within that um, you know, framework, whether you like it or not. Um, and same thing as an investor. You can only look around and say, what's the best return for my money? And, um, you know, if, if, if that's going to be an increasingly ESG world, which it probably is, you have to take that into account. There's no, you know, if you see a company that's not ESG, you have to evaluate, are its returns going to be higher? Well, all else being equal, they probably would be. But what kinds of um, government and NGO pressures are going to bear down on that company? Will the profits be higher in the end if they take that recalcitrant view? I don't have any answers to those questions. I can only raise them. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, and that's why every mining company has to, you know, they have to be looking at this because they have to know that behind that, you know, allegedly voluntary uh, compliance with this is the, you know, there's a, there's a velvet glove, but inside that velvet glove is a, is an iron fist. And, um, you know, you're going to get smacked by that iron fist if you don't take some at least minimal steps to, to move in that direction. I'd like to get your thoughts on gold uh, before you leave. Last year, monetary metals went on record expecting higher gold and silver prices. Uh, that didn't happen. In fact, in your own self-assessment, you graded yourself a D on that forecast. And uh, something I struggled with last year was a lot of just people I converse with that don't follow the markets closely, but can see that prices are going up, up and up. And they have at least the basic understanding that gold usually goes up when there's inflation because it should be a store of purchasing power. And they would say, well, why isn't gold going up? if everything else is going up. So that your expectation was gold was going to go up last year. It didn't, you know, what's the diagnosis of what you got wrong there? So I guess in a, in a, in a very general sense, um, Adam Smith said there's a great deal of ruin in the nation. So if you look at, you know, the position that the Fed is in, what, what they're going to have to do. Um, and it's okay. That's coming. And, um, it takes, you know, things take longer to play out than, you know, once you've come to the conclusion, you expect it to happen, you know, if not tomorrow morning, certainly by next Monday. And things take longer than that. Um, but what I saw last year and what I see this year even more powerfully is that, you know, the incentives to continue to be a creditor. So to own a dollar means to be a creditor to the government. There is no way not to be a creditor and yet own what, what people call money or money balance. Um so I, I thought, okay, there's an increasing incentive not to be. Um, but, you know, at the same time that the prices are rising, which, as I've said, they're not rising due to monetary forces. The price of gold isn't going to go up because we've put an embargo on uh, Mexican avocados. We've, we've doubled the tariff on Canadian lumber. 
or because we blocked a pipeline from the American Midwest where they're fracking for natural gas to um, to New England at the same time that we blocked a trans electric power, transmission power line from um, Hydro Quebec to to New England. So we have all sorts of things that are driving prices up, which people are really feeling, but they're not monetary, and gold isn't going to respond to that. Um, where I think we're at now, so yeah, so I, so we said, okay, we'll take a D for that. Um, our 10-year record, we did pretty well. Last year was not one of our good years for, for making a prediction. This year, uh, I said, this is the hardest year ever to try to make a prediction because we stand at this fork in the road. I mean, the Fed has now announced that they're hell-bent on taking this path, which is going to cause ruin, or at least I should say precipitate. The ruin's already baked in the cake although they don't see it that way, and I don't think most people see it. Um, and that is hiking rates, which will destroy all the zombies, create an enormous number of defaults. Those defaults will begin cascading. Many companies that aren't today reckoned to be zombies will find that they suddenly become zombies. Their revenue dries up. Um, credit defaults all over the place. And, um, uh, you know, and the Fed will have to react and, and reverse course. And the question is, how long does the Fed take before they flinch, you know, if this is a game of chicken, how quick do they jump out of the road? And so if the Fed persists and they say, you know, damn the torpedoes, we're willing to take another 2008 or worse, we have to correct this course and we have to get ahead of inflation as they would imagine it, then um, the prices of most assets would absolutely collapse if the Fed were to persist in that uh, policy. Um, I don't think the price of gold would drop that much. Um, but certainly not a, 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 a bullish case, at least not initially. Um, however, I think the Fed is going to flinch. As I said in 2015, the last time that everyone, at number one, the story was inflation, and number two, the Fed said, we're going to hike rates. I said, well, if they hike them, they won't hike them for very, very high, and they won't be able to hold it for very long. And that, that turned out to be, you know, correct. Um, so if the Fed flinches, then I think there is a very bullish case for gold once the market says, oh, the Fed has completely put their tail between their legs and they've come, you know, whining back to their back to their cage for, for another biscuit. Um, then, I, you know, I think a lot of people will come to gold first time buyers as there were in 2008, 2009, as there were post-COVID there'll be another crop of first time buyers that say, I just got to get my hands on some of this because, you know, I don't know how the monetary system is going to play itself out. Uh, I don't have a PhD in, in economics, but surely this can't be good. Like something bad is going to happen here. If I had a little bit of gold in my portfolio, maybe that'll, you know, protect me. And that's what people said, obviously, 2008 and 2020. Um, and I think something like that is, is likely to come. And it depends on which way we go, you know, past this fork. So um, my crystal ball when it comes to predicting you know, political outcomes is, is no better than anybody else's. I can only look at the monetary system and say this causes this, but how, how Jay Powell's going to react, how Biden's going to react, you know, I'll know better than any other, you know, any other pundit, probably not as good as any. If your website is monetary-metals.com, remind listeners what they'll find there. So we are a, uh, a company that offers a way for people to earn interest on their gold, paid in gold, so a gold fixed income program, we do that by leasing gold to jewelers and refiners and mints and bullion dealers and others in the space, and also by lending it to uh, mining companies. Um, 
the benefit to the investor is you're getting a yield on real money, not subject to the Fed's debasement. The Fed states its policy intention is 2% debasement per year. So if you earn 2% in a, in a bank account, which you can't, the Fed is taking it away anyways. If you earn 2% on gold, that's not subject to debasement. The benefit to the borrower is it, is it removes price risk, uh, which, is, which is one of their big risks. If, if you're a mining company and you invest in a project uh, thinking the gold price is going to be 1850, if the gold price goes to 1550, you could be in a world of hurt, depending on obviously your cost of mining. So by borrowing in gold, you, um, you hedge that risk. But unlike a, a financial hedge, you don't have margin calls and all the other problems that you know, mining companies have, have bumped into over the years. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your insights. Thanks, Bill, for having me. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.